0: This, um, this past week, um, we had our FIRE, that's the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, um, our FIRE regional conference. And so a bunch of pastors and elders and some of their wives and, and other church members of FIRE churches in the Midwest, we gathered at LaRue Baptist Church for a few days of preaching, of prayer, of um, really just general encouragement, and our group, uh, it's kind of a local group of, we call them Tim pastors, uh, teammates in ministry, it's really because of Tim Pasma, our leader, um, we took care of the preaching, and I was called upon to preach on that first evening on Monday night, and, and our theme, the theme of the, of the conference of our time together was the beauty of Christ, And I spoke on the beauty of Christ in worship. Pastor Caleb, Caleb Hackworth of Redeemer Covenant in Arlington, he spoke on the beauty of Christ that changes us, transforms us. Andrew Beebe, who is Tim Pasman's assistant there in LaRue, he spoke on the beauty of Christ in judgment. Pastor Joel Hollins, uh, who was with us last year here, um, he's from Grace Covenant in Beaver Creek, he spoke on the beauty of Christ that unifies us. And then finally, Pastor Josh Haas um, of New City Fellowship in Marion. He spoke on the beauty of Christ in grace. And I hadn't planned to preach the same message here that I did there. Um, we were going to continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians 15, but for a couple of reasons, and with some encouragement from Pastor Ben, who was there. Um, I decided it would be good for us to dwell on the beauty of Christ in worship this morning. Ultimately, we're going to make our way to Psalm 96, but we're going to take our time getting there. Because it took me quite a while, if I'm honest, to wrap my mind around what we mean by the beauty of Christ. The, the beauty of Christ in worship, specifically. So I'll do my best to keep you with me this morning, but I need you to work hard, too, at paying attention and staying with me. The beauty of Christ in worship, I don't think that way. When I think of Christ, I I don't think about His beauty. It's just not something that naturally comes into my mind. It's not a word that I would use to describe our Savior. But that, that says more about me than it does about Him. See, when I think of beauty, I think of it in purely worldly terms. I think of looks or maybe personality. I think of it as, honestly, I think of it as a mostly feminine trait, unless we're talking about a a beautiful landscape or a sunset. Men are not beautiful. They are handsome, I would say. Besides, as the saying goes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Of course, you remember the prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 53, which says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. But of course, and, and you've, you've already picked up on this, I'm speaking here purely as a man, from a man-centered point of view. And, and that's what the prophet Isaiah is talking about as well. The incarnate Christ, the God in the flesh that laid aside His glory, His majesty, and His beauty to take on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. As a man, Jesus took on the commonness and the limitations of our humanity. There was nothing, humanly speaking, extraordinary about Him. And in fact, Scripture tells us that at His crucifixion, sinful men so disfigured His physical appearance that He wasn't even recognizable. His appearance while He was on the cross can really only be described as grotesque. And yet it is here that we really glimpse His beauty. In the late 1600s, an English Seventh-day Baptist named Joseph Stennett, he first published a collection of hymns um, for the church with with a very typical puritanical title. This is the title of the hymnal. Hymns in commemoration of the sufferings of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, composed for the celebration of his Holy Supper. Hymns to be sung at communion. One such hymn was entitled, Thy Loveliness I View. And the first verse goes like this. It says, O Prince of Peace, blessed thou this board with those sweet smiles which angels cheer. O give us peace and tell us, Lord, we are pardoned, and accepted here. Commenting on this hymn, a theologian named Michael Haken, he writes this. He says, This experience of God's loving forgiveness at the table because of Christ's atoning death should so overwhelm the believer with wonder and and lead to ardent rededication to Christ. This communion hymn continues. Listen for the beauty of Christ in this old him thou art all love my dearest lord thou art all lovely too thy love i at thy table taste thy loveliness i view thy divine beauty veiled with flesh thy enemies despise thy mangled body they did disdain and turn from thee their eyes but thou art more lovely to me for th- All that thou hast borne, each cloud sets off thy luster more. Thee all thy scars adorn. Thy garments tinctured with blood, the best and noblest die. Outshine the robes that princes wear. Thy thorns, their gems outvie. That I may be all love to thee and lovely like thee too. O oh, cleanse me with thy precious blood, and me thy beauty show. My former vows I now renew. O oh, Lord, as thou art mine, I freely give my heart to thee. Forever I'll be thine. When we come to the table to proclaim the Lord's death, we come to proclaim the atonement for sins. We come to proclaim that Christ died for our sins. We come to to taste and see that the Lord is good, that blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. We come to behold the beauty of Christ in worship. But it's not just limited to the table. In fact, all of our worship is a beholding of the beauty, the loveliness, the splendor of Christ. Listen to what David writes in the 27th Psalm One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forget me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 basically contains all of the elements that we have when we we call the people together, when when we assemble the saints when we gather here in the name of Jesus Christ as the church of Jesus Christ. Psalm 27 contains that, the prayer and, and praise. It contains confession and, and assurances of pardon, offerings, reminders of the promises of God. And when we are called each day, each Lord's day, when we are called to worship, as we come into the house of the Lord, we are calling you, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And I know that our prayer for us in here, as God's people, our prayer is that we would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. I don't know if you've noticed this, but often as we call the church to worship on the Lord's day, We go straight to the Psalms. Now, of course, there are other passages that direct our eyes and our hearts heavenward that we could begin our worship with. Sometimes I will find some in the New Testament. I especially like to do that, that emphasize Jesus specifically. But the Psalms, as we could call them, God's hymnal, they're filled with calls to worship. So more often than not, we will begin our services with a a reading that sounds something like this. This is actually what we read last week. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Of course, that's from Psalm 96. And a little bit deeper into this psalm, it is said of the Lord who made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Do you remember what David said there in Psalm 27 that I read a minute ago? One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And so what we will do here for the rest of our time, that was my introduction, what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning is we're going to take a deeper look at the call to worship the Lord by gazing upon His beauty in His sanctuary from Psalm 96. Because I believe this psalm highlights for us the call to worship, our motives for worshiping, and it compels us to proclaim that His beauty is not fleeting, nor is it in vain. So let's read Psalm 96, and then we're going to flip back to 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, so be prepared for that, for just a little bit of background. But let's read this, and then we're, then we're going to just stop and pray too. Psalm 96 says this, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the nations be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us what we need this morning. Lord, we are hungry for you and for your word, and so I pray that you would feed us today as you have promised to do. Give us ears to hear, that our lips might proclaim your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, just... Keep your finger in Psalm 96 and turn back um, to 1 Chronicles. It gives us a little bit of the background of this psalm. I'm just going to read a few verses. Um, and it tells us really what could be considered 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, sort of the end of 15, beginning of 16. Um, tell us about what, what, could, what we can, can, could consider the crowning moment of King David's career. Metaphorically crowning. He had an actual crowning moment. This is his metaphorically crowning moment of his career when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. This was an important moment for David and for the people of Israel because the Ark of the Covenant stood as a, as a representative of God's own throne or, or specifically His footstool. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant contained a few items namely the tablets of the law, some manna, and Aaron's staff that had budded. The Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant everywhere they went, even into battle. It was of utmost importance to the people because God had said when He was telling them just exactly how to build the Ark of the Covenant, He said in Exodus 25, verse 22, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was where God would meet with his people, where he would speak to them. And so it should come as no surprise that when when King David finally brought the Ark uh, to Jerusalem after taking the city from the Jebusites and establishing Jerusalem as the capital, uh, it should come as no surprise that there was much rejoicing. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 15.25, so David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the, Lord, of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark and the singers, and Chaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud, made loud music on harps and lyres. Just a few verses later, jump down to chapter 16, verse 1, we read this, and they brought in the Ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaroth, uh, Jehiel, uh, Mattathiah, Eliab, Beniah, Obed-Edom, and Jail, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jaziel, where the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And what follows from there down, and you can see this probably in your Bible, if you just look at it, overview the rest of, most of the rest of the chapter... What follows is a psalm of worship, praise. And, and what we have here in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 is longer than what's in Psalm 96, but all of Psalm 96 is here. Okay? So this is probably where Psalm 96 comes from. David writes this song, and we have it in Psalm 96, at least most of it, um, collected in the Psalms. And so we're going to, kind of for the sake of argument, and because I think this is the case, we believe that Psalm 96 was written by King David when the Ark of the Covenant first came into uh, Jerusalem. And so it is the most explicit, the Ark of the Covenant is the most explicit and specific symbol of God's presence and the exact place from which God would speak to His people and it is brought to Mount Zion but hold up a minute is the ark of the covenant really the best symbol of God's presence and the place from which God speaks to his people is it the best way to view God's beauty by looking at a at a gold-laden box with some cherubim on top Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so I would submit to you that Psalm 96 is actually a messianic psalm. It's a glimpse through the Ark of the Covenant coming up into Jerusalem. It's a glimpse of Christ ascending his throne. Martin Luther said of this psalm specifically, he said this is a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ and the spreading of the gospel over the whole world and before every creature, which gospel will be a word of joy and of thanksgiving, of peace, of rejoicing, and of continued sacrifice of praise. And so we could say with Matthew Henry, though this was sung at the translation of the ark, Psalm 96, though it was sung at the translation of the ark, it looks further to the kingdom of Christ and is designed to celebrate the glories of that kingdom, especially the ascension of Gentiles to it, that we are brought into Christ's kingdom. So how can this be? How can the Ark of the Covenant's arrival in Jerusalem be connected to Jesus Christ? Well, according to the Old Testament, once the law was placed inside the Ark, the lid, which they called the mercy seat, closed the box. See, God knew, to kind of jump to the point here, God knew that Israel would break His law, but that He would also be merciful and cover their law-breaking to guard those who loved Him from His wrath. Ultimately, of course, this was achieved through the death of a substitute and the sprinkling of blood upon the mercy seat and the day of atonement. And so we can say that the blood of the sacrifices stand between God and the broken law of God. Now fast forward and bring your minds back to the table, which is where we started. I know this is fairly complicated, but come back to the table where we started, the Lord's Table. Communion. We're going to go there before we leave today. But because of Christ's shed blood, we can now meet with the Lord in worship just as the high priest used to meet with God before the ark. Okay? You know that there's a lot more to this that I've skipped over, and someday we'll go through this in Sunday school or something to fill in all the details, but we're still trying to get to Psalm 96. So, Because of Christ's final atonement for sin in His own shed blood, when we are called to worship in His presence, we do so with awe and with wonder. Because when the saints assemble... When the church assembles, we are are entering into our king's heavenly throne room. Have you ever considered that? When the church assembles together, we are coming into the presence of God and joining with the heavenly choir in worship. And so as typically either myself or Ben, as the sort of the Christ's under-shepherds, one of the elders possibly... When we summon, when we we read a call to worship at the beginning of our services, we are summoning God's people to praise the Lord in light of His present and future reign as the King of kings because of who He is. And we join with the heavenly choir in proclaiming. When we sing, when we worship together, we are joining with the heavenly choir proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Our prayers for the people of God under our care as the the elders of the church is that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple because splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. This all begins with a call to worship. Sing and declare, we are told. So, a call to worship. Look at the first two verses of Psalm 96. It says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Sing and declare. One of the joys of the church... um, and I said this the other night as we gathered together, so many different churches represented. One of the joys of the church is that among the, among the many churches who were there represented at our, at our conference or that we are in fellowship with, um, that are gathering even now around the country, one of the joys of the church is that there's a variety of, of liturgies. That just means orders of service, how we worship, the order that we worship. And they all believe, as members of the fellowship of churches, we believe roughly the same things. Same things about preaching and prayer, about the public reading of Scripture, and even the sacraments, the ordinances of communion and baptism. And even in our agreement on those things, it's likely that the order that we do things are all slightly different. But I know that we are all called to sing. The time might be just a little off, but pretty much on Sunday morning, there's a a multitude of churches that we are in fellowship with, and of course others too, believers around, let's say, the eastern time zone that are gathering at just about the same time to sing praises to the Lord's name. Imagine if you could hear them all at the same time. We're gathering together to sing praises for God's name for who he is and what he has done. Sing to the Lord, all of you, young and old, in tune and off key. Sing to the Lord, you with dirt under your fingernails. The mom who looks to be 11 months pregnant. Sing to the Lord. Sing a new song. This idea of a new song that he mentions here Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. It isn't an argument for fresh tunes, necessarily. Because the emphasis, whenever we see this idea of a new song, it's, it's on the one whose mercies are new every morning. Sing of God's fresh advances in redemption. When Moses led God's people through the Red Sea, saving them. The first thing they did is actually found in Exodus 15. And verses 1 to 3 says this, Moses and all the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. We can sing this song with them. Our songs can be called new because they've been adapted to a new purpose. Having been intended in this case, in Psalm, the case of Psalm 96, it was in, in, uh, the purpose was to celebrate the new mercy of the ark coming into Jerusalem. And it leads us to Christ coming and establishing His kingdom, which is what we sing for. Think of, think of it this way. Think of the first Palm Sunday when the people proclaimed as Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, just a week before they proclaimed, crucify him, crucify him. As Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, the people proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, this means something deeper and richer to us even than it did to them, doesn't it? Sing all the earth. Sing everyone. Tell of his salvation. I love how the Apostle Paul ties together in his his letter to Ephesians and to Colossians. He ties together the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's word on this point. The point of singing. Let me sort of mash these together and I think this will make sense. But be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those were from Ephesians and Colossians, and I mashed them together because they say the same thing. He's talking about our corporate worship. When we gather together, sing, he says. Sing truth with thankfulness toward God in the name of your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Worship with melody. Praise Him for His person and work, for who He is and what He has done. And furthermore, we're called to worship with sermons. Look at verse 3, Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his works among all the peoples. William uh, Plumer, Plummer, I'm not sure how to say his name. There's no B in it, so I would say Plumer, but that's weird. So just call him William Plummer. He calls this psalm a missionary hymn for the ages of the church. Pastors are called to declare, to proclaim, to herald God's glory. We're called to follow in the footsteps of those who went before us, even, even, even in the face of opposition and persecution. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, it says. It says. His salvation, His glory, the gospel, the preached word of God, the good news glorifies Jesus Christ, and we are commanded. Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now jump ahead just a little bit here in our in Psalm ninety six. Sometimes when we consider these things, declaring his glory among the nations, as it says, and we can we can translate that as missions and evangelism. Well sometimes when we think of missions and we think of evangelism, we forget that we're called to do these things in the assembly as well. Verses 7, 8, and 9 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. If you look up at the first two verses of this psalm, the worshipers are called to sing, sing, sing three times. Now we are called to ascribe, 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 which, which just doesn't have the same ring to it, but it's just as important. It means give credit where credit is due. David is calling us here to glorify the Lord. Gather your family, he says. Gather your family, bring an offering, come into his courts and worship the Lord. Glorify his holy name. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. But the call to worship is a call to come together. It's the assembly of the saints, which is a beautiful thing. Rich Mullins, um, actually, not that this matters, but tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of his death. He wrote in his song, Here in America. He said, and if I were a painter, I do not know which I'd paint the calling of the ancient stars or the assembling of the saints. There's just so much beauty around us for just two eyes to see. But everywhere I go, I'm looking. This is a call to give him his due, ascribe to the Lord, and to do so in the, in the splendor or beauty of holiness. This is, nothing, this is nothing but a reflection of Christ's beauty, and if that wasn't enough, this really brings us to our motives for worshiping. Our motives for worshiping. I- implied in the call to worship, or maybe it's more than implied, is the reason for worship, right? His salvation, His glory, His marvelous works. And, and we could preach whole sermon series. I- I could- we-, we could spend a lot of time in these psalms and in these topics. And, and someday we will, Lord willing. But I want to look closer at the motives that this psalmist gives us here in verses 4, 5, and 6, beginning with the fact that he is the God of gods. God of gods. Verses 4 and 5 says this, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The gods of this age are completely powerless even though we continue to submit to them right the gods of this age are completely powerless even though we continue to submit to them but yahweh the lord he is truly great he is the creator of all things he called the ancient stars and assembled the saints as Spurgeon says, he's not some he's not some petty deity presiding, as the heathen imagine their gods do, over some particular nation or one department of nature—the god of the, the sun god or the moon god or the, the god of rain or the god of Ohio or something like that. He's far greater than that. He is greatly to be praised. We cannot praise him too much, too often too zealously, too carefully, too joyfully. He is to be feared above all gods. Not in a, not in a superstitious way as, as pagans who live in fear of failing to, to appease their gods who might punish them at, at any moment by sending some sickness or some disaster on them. No, for Yahweh's people, for the Lord's people, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, Spurgeon said, holy fear is the beginning of the graces of God. Fear of God is the blush upon the face of holiness, enhancing its beauty. There's that word beauty again. The beauty of holiness. Our, Our holiness is but a dim reflection of Christ's beauty. We worship, we, we come with hearts sprinkled clean. We we come in the splendor of holiness because of Christ's strength and beauty. When we consider the beauty of Christ in worship, I'm convinced that a big part of this is his holiness, his purity. So overwhelming is his splendor and majesty that Isaiah chapter six tells us that angels cover their faces. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, both above and below, in his very presence. Isaiah, Isaiah was so distraught at his holiness as as he saw and he heard from Isaiah chapter six Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For us. When we when we are called to worship, when when we call you to come into his courts, come into his sanctuary, we realize that there's a spiritual element to this, right? We're not talking about this room, although we're all in this room. We're talking about coming into his sanctuary to behold his beauty, his Holiness, His majesty, His love, His salvation. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And so we are calling you to experience God's strength. He is our rock. He is our strong tower. He is to be feared above all gods, for He is creator. The Lord made the heavens come before Him with trembling, He said. And furthermore, his beauty is not fleeting, and it's not in vain. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we are compelled to proclaim, to let it be told, let it be told. Verses, pick it up in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let it be told that Jesus is King. Jesus is King. The world is established by the word of his power. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and and frankly never will. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. No matter what we see in the news, you know that's true? Despite the evil that we see all around us every single day, even in in our families, even in our own hearts, Despite, despite the fact that we can evil, easily describe what we see uh, around us as, as sounding like this, as being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Despite that, we are called to point out the beauty of Christ. We are called to, for you, for us, to keep our eyes fixed Firmly on our sovereign, righteous judge who has assured us, who has promised us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many of our burdens are so heavy. So many of your burdens and mine are heavy. And they don't just disappear when we come to Christ, right? The weight of sin and death is removed, but the effects of sin, the curse is removed, but the effects weigh on us, don't they? When we are called to worship on Sunday morning at 1045, when we are called to worship, we're calling sinners who have failed through the week to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need these reminders. We need the reminders of the promises of God. We need reminders that he will judge in righteousness And in faithfulness. And so that we need reminders, we need reminders that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we are calling you to worship, we're calling each other to direct our hearts upon the Lord for worship, we're calling on we're calling on one another to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple and to hear his pardon. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can see, as we come together, to be assured, of God's grace, to be assured of his mercy, to be called to worship him, we can see that splendor and majesty are before him, that strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Pray with me. Father, help us not to forget these things strength and beauty your holiness the holiness without which no one will see the Lord that we have that through Christ that we can come to you that we are called to gather in your name as your people the assembly of the saints to worship you because of who you are and what you have done that we are called Father to worship Jesus Christ your only begotten son because whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because of the gospel, Lord, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, we are called to worship. Father, we do so today as we come to the table to be reminded of and to proclaim his death until he returns, to be reminded of the atonement for sins that we have been forgiven. We come to the table of our Lord with hearts of thankfulness. And so, Lord, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. We thank you for what they are and what they represent, Lord. Jesus' body on the cross, his shed blood for us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because because of all that Jesus has done. And so as we come to the table this morning, Lord, we pray that that our lips, our minds, our hearts would declare your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.